Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and I'm joined by Henry Taylor, who's a associate professor in philosophy at the University of Birmingham. And he has an interest in uh, cognitive science and um, related areas. And so today we'll be discussing uh, his work as it relates to some of the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence in the ICA4. So thanks so much for joining me today, Henry. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. So maybe just to kind of get us started, um, one of the questions I've been asking uh, the, the other fellows is just what drew you to your field? What drew you to philosophy as a, uh, as a discipline? What drew you to the particular questions that you're, that you're interested in? Uh, well, I was always interested in, I've been interested in philosophy since I was about a teenager. Um, I'm quite fascinated by the idea that you might use just purely logical argumentation to uh, establish uh, substantial conclusions. So I remember being fascinated by the idea that you could prove God's existence when I was very young, that you could start from mere, mere logical principles and try and prove something as, uh, as, as big as that. Um, but since... Uh, since starting, I realised that what I was primarily interested in was the mind and understanding how the the mind works. At the moment, I'm uh, mostly interested in the philosophy of psychology and philosophy of cognitive science, especially the uh, phil philosophical work on uh, a field called psychophysics. So psychophysics is it's a branch of perceptual psychology. It's been characterised as the study of the link between an object and someone's perception of the object. So it, it typically involves showing people various things, showing them stimuli, shapes, whatever, and then studying the way in which uh, you go from viewing uh, a particular stimulus to actually having a full-on perception of it and you, you know your brain actually computing uh, what's going on out there in the world. Um, and that's where most of my philosophical work's been focused on in these last few years yeah you know it, it just something that is is kind of fun about that is is what drew you to the field of it sounds like what drew you to the field of philosophy in the first place was the uh the non-empirical nature that you could kind of learn something about the world or, or or come to to know something about the world um through kind of pure reason um and and ultimately though the, your work has taken you so that you're very much in conversation with um with empirical work in psychology and related fields. Was that a gradual process? Um, I think that quite quickly I became a bit sceptical of the power of pure reason <laughs> to... I, I became a bit sceptical that human beings were very good reasoners generally. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I think that, um, I think that when, I, when I sat down and thought seriously about it, I kind of decided that science was probably the, the best shot we had at understanding um, reality. But I also, from looking at the psychology and looking at psychophysics, I did kind of decide that the sort of tools philosophers get taught, like rigorous logical argumentation and think, making very subtle distinctions between different things, I decided that, that, was a, uh, that those were skills that could really help kind of empirical science. So yeah, I did change my view quite um, radically, I became. I suppose I became more impressed with science and with psychology specifically, and less uh, impressed with human <laughs> beings. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Would you now? Would you consider the work that you do as a a subfield of the philosophy of science, or would you think of that as a separate line of research in philosophy? Uh, 
No, I think of it very much as a kind of philosophy of science. I think it's fair to say that philosophy of science has changed an awful lot over the 20th century and into the 21st. Um, I think there was a time associated with philosophy of science in maybe the 30s and 40s um, on up through the on up through the 20th century when it was a bit cut off from science and what science was actually doing. And I think it's fair to say that recently there's been two big shifts in philosophy of science. Uh, the first one is philosophers have become far more familiar with what the actual scientists ge genuinely do right. do and say. And there's also been a shift to understanding all the different kinds of science that go on. So in recent years, there's been resurgences in in the 60s, there was a, a huge movement towards philosophy of biology and then philosophy of psychology. And now at this point, we have things like philosophy of climate science, philosophy of paleontology, etc. Mm -hmm. I think understanding that science is rich and complex and made up of many, many small subfields is something that philosophers have really got on board with in recent years. Um. That's actually really fascinating. Maybe if we have time, we could return to some of these kind of meta questions about the uh, conversation between uh, philosophy and, and science and how, how that has become more rich um, and um, maybe productive in the last couple of decades. But just to uh, zero in on some of your work, um, uh, one of the questions that you've tackled uh, a, a bit um, is engaging with psychological research on attention and the nature of attention. Um, so what, what, what drew you to those questions? What, what's interesting about attention? Well, so I've, I've got a big philosophical insight to share with you now, which is, <laughs> which is that the world is full of stuff. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of stuff in the world. And uh -huh. what's interesting about it is that there's far more stuff out there than we could ever possibly look at or think about or understand at any one time. So our, our brains are very complicated and really impressive of course but there's just far too much available information for us to be able to process it all that's just not possible for us and so this is where attention comes in attention essentially functions as a filter and its job more or less in the perceptual system is to detect the stuff that we should be focusing on should be spending our precious tiny resources on uh, and the stuff uh, that can be usefully discarded I think that the, the idea of attention as a filter is first kind of what drew me, the idea that it's kind of structuring the parts of the world you look at and think about was what first drew me to it. But shortly after I started looking at it, I became apparent that it's actually not quite right to think of attention as a filter between you and the world, because it's actually a much more active participant in the process. So, like, um, what psychophysics has shown over the last, uh, well, de especially over the last three decades or so, but going back even further, is that attention is, it's not sort of just picking the bits and pieces that you're interested in. It's also uh, actively constructing the way you perceive the world. So what you pay attention to can affect how dark you, you perceive objects to be. It, it um, affects how much you, how you perceive time you pay attention to something you might perceive it as taking a bit longer uh, it can affect the size of things that you perceive so i, I first started thinking about attention because i was interested in how how the brain deals with this problem of finite resources 
and I eventually realized that attention was not just sifting the wheat from the chaff, but it was also actively constructing and changing the way we perceive the world. And as a philosopher interested in the relationship between the mind and the world, that was just fascinating to me. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And actually, um, in one of the earlier podcasts, when I spoke with um, Alex Kaiko Gaik, who is mm -hmm. a, um, you know, she's a neuroscientist, and, and we were talking about, you know, kind of the brain processing and how the brain moves information between different regions and so on. And and what gets lost in that process, um, but where the loss is understood as a good thing, right? What, essentially, you know, you have to throw away information. But she was really, um, she kind of pressed on the point that it's not just a matter of exactly what you said, filtering, and this is at a, a structural level, right? It's mm -hmm. also about transforming the information um, that's coming across, that there's a lot of transformation that's happening in that process. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the amount of the amount of, of loss of information as you move further along the visual system is, is quite amazing, really. So the, the amount of information that falls on the retina on your eyes is enormous. It gets filtered into a, 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 a small memory system and then it gets filtered again into an even smaller one. It's it, really there is a, a small fraction that gets fully processed and the processes that determine what gets processed and how it gets processed are are quite amazing really so th this is this is a little slightly um digression but there was a, a paper a few years ago that i i remember coming across by a economist um, environmental economist um, solomon shian is his name he's at berkeley and if i recall the details what he was looking at is there was a volcanic explosion that uh, reduced um kind of differentially across the planet the amount of sunlight that hit the planet and um you know, one of the things that was interesting, and so he was looking at different consequences of that in terms of agricultural yields or, uh -huh. you know, uh, effectiveness of solar panels. But I just, one of the things I found fascinating, he was just talking about this is, you know, no one really noticed it. Like we, our brains just immediately <laughs> updated, like, you know, like we, there was a, a, a little dimness and then all of a sudden our brains just rejiggered basically um, our perceptions of the world. Um, and you know, there was this huge phenomenon that essentially we didn't attend to because it wasn't essentially important to us. Um, I just found that to be a kind of fascinating kind of global attention shift or global perception shift that the um, that we all experienced and didn't even notice. There's a, yeah, I mean, the the effect I think you're referring to is called inattentional blindness. And it it's, it essentially is just a, a catch-all term for um, cases where you can fail to um, fail to perceive something just because you don't pay attention to it, even if that thing is quite amazingly different. So there's some really fun experiments where they, they take an experimenter out onto the street and they, uh, they say to some random person, could you point me in the direction of, I don't know, Tesco or something, and present them with a map. And while the person's pointing on the map to where Tesco is, the experimenter will be niftily replaced Right. <laughs> with a completely different person, maybe even in different clothing. Right. And um, the person doesn't notice. I mean, I, I did always wonder uh, if that was ever performed in the UK, whether the person would notice, but just be too polite to point it out. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, um, but I mean, that's just one of many, many cases. The inattentional blindness is fascinating. It's um, it's one of the earliest psychophysics results regarding attention. It was known about since at least the 50s. And um, there's even a, a little passage uh, way back in uh, some of Aristotle's work mm. where he talks about what we would now call inattentional blindness, where he says basically that it's it's 
you can easily miss stuff right in front of you if you're listening to loud music um, mm -hmm. so it's got a strong philosophical pedigree as well wow that's really interesting um so one of the things that i also think is in interesting personally about the field of psychology is the way in which um the, the field partially progresses by identifying people with um, somewhat non-normal characteristics um, brain injuries sometimes or um, or related um, you know kind of related issues and then from those cases is able to kind of reason backwards to to, to identify more general um, mm -hmm. more general phenomena so one of the experiments that you um, kind of discuss and um, you know kind of consider in, in some of your work is this uh, experiment on blind blind sight mm -hmm. um, and and you know kind of how that might tell us something you know these experiments experiments might tell us something about the nature of attention so what 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 are these experiments like what's the setup and and what is what, what do we learn from them so blind sight is um, a phenomenon which has been known about for a few decades now um, the experiment in specifically was performed in Durham in the 90s um, by a psychophysicist called Robert Kentridge and his colleagues. And in terms of the philosophical import of his work, uh, Robert Kentridge is pro possibly the most important psychophysicist of recent years. Um, uh, certainly the relationship between psychophysics and philosophy, it, he's, he's one of the main figures. And um, what happened was he performed it on a subject called GY and GY severe damage to an area of his brain called primary visual cortex, sometimes called V1 in neuroscience speak. And essentially what it does is it, it leaves him with a patch of his visual field that he's blind to. So there's an area of uh, his visual field such that if you were to place an object in that area, he would sincerely deny seeing it. He would, if you put a, a mug there and asked him what was there, he would quite simply say, um, I can't I have no idea what, what are you talking about I'm blind in that area of my visual field I can't see that mm. however if you were to um, provide him with a forced choice uh, what's called a, an AFC paradigm an alternative forced choice basically if you tell him you know did you see a mug or did you see a teddy bear um, then he would be able to get it right he would think that he's guessing but he would get it right uh, to a very very high um, mm. standard so that's um, blindsight generally. Uh, what Robert Kentridge and his colleagues did was he was interested in whether um, GY could pay attention to things that were in his blind area. So he uh, placed a disc in, uh, it, this was all on a screen of course, he put a disc, uh, made a disc appear in uh, GY's blind field and uh, before that an arrow would point towards where the disc was going to be. He told GY to respond by clicking a button whenever he thought something was present in his blind field. Um, and it turned out that GY was successful at doing this. In fact, GY, it's quite interesting, GY really did have no consciousness of this disc at all. He was really completely unaware of it. In fact, he even accused the experimenters of tricking him. He accused the experimenters he said there isn't really a disc there um this is just you, you know this is just some control condition which you're running and in fairness to him of course that is something that psychophysicists do all the time um but it turned out that he was right 
98, 99% of the time, he was correctly guessing when the disc was there. And what's really important is that when an arrow previously showed, told GY where the disc was going to appear, even though it appeared in his blind field, um, GY was, a, was much faster to identify the disc in that condition. And what this shows is that, um, or what the experimenters claim it shows, is that GY can pay attention to something even though it falls within his blind field and even though he had no conscious, consciousness of it whatsoever. So it's possible to pay attention to something that you're not even conscious of even slightly. That's what this experiment has been taken to show. And because of the kind of strong nature of that conclusion, this has been a, a very influential experiment in subsequent discussion of attention and how it relates to consciousness. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think we should all uh, thank uh, GY for his his or her mm. participation because uh, it yeah. sounds like a very frustrating <laughs> experience. But you yes, know. I'm sure it was. <laughs> um, so. So, so then, you know, once the kind of um, the, the the psychologists got hold of this experiment, and the, and and kind of philosophers who were interested in this stuff as well, was there kind of universal agreement that what was happening with GY was that um, this was attention, or was there was there some disagreement about that point? There was certainly disagreement. Um, one suggestion made by uh, some people was that perhaps GY was not actually paying attention to the disc. Uh, that fell in his blind field, but he was actually somehow paying attention to the region of space, not the disc itself. That was a, a suggestion that people uh, made. Um, also, some philosophers uh, suggested that perhaps it was more to do with eye movements, um, the way that um, G.Y. was moving his eyes at the time, which made the effect appear um, rather than um, actually paying attention itself. So it was more a kind of physiological reaction than it was an actual psychological attention uh, phenomenon. I think in the field now, um, it's broadly agreed, um, after about 20-odd years of discussion, it's broadly agreed that GY was paying attention to the disc. And um, uh, this similar effects have been demonstrated in uh, neurotypical um, subjects who, of course, don't have um, any damage to the relevant area but what's really interesting about it is that I think in I think in the academic field philosophers of psychophysics and psychophysicists themselves there is a very broad consensus that GY was paying attention to the disc and that the disc was not conscious to him that very roughly there is that kind of agreement but when you think about it in terms of well was he paying attention to the disc you think well Using a more kind of everyday notion of attention, the answer seems quite clearly no. Like, he wasn't conscious of it at all. He denied its existence. How could you say he was paying attention to it? I mean, right, right. You, you don't count as paying attention to things that, um, that, that, you, that you say, oh, no, I don't even believe it exists, you know? Right, um, right. So here you've got quite an interesting case where the kind of technical definition of attention as used by psychophysicists um, and philosophers of psycho, uh, psychophysics and psychology, uh, that seems very radically different from what a, a normal everyday definition of attention might be. Uh, and this is, this is a case where they seem to quite clearly come apart. There's a broad consensus in psychology that he was paying attention to the disc, but that really seems to clash with how we normally think of attention in everyday life. Right, which is very much a kind of a conscious conscious phenomenon i'm just trying to so on the, the 
the more technical definition, it's it was about the the reaction time, basically that that you're attending um, at some level because um, you're primed to then respond to a stimuli or something like that. It, what, what would we what would we say the technical definition at play here is? Well, psychophysicists tend to use what are called operationalist definitions of psychological terms. So that sounds like a really technical... Sort very of, fancy. Yeah, yeah very fancy. <laughs> I don't see the point in being an academic if you can't confidently say <laughs> that something's an operationalist definition of right. a psychological... I didn't get into this game so that I could not use terms like that. But what, what it really means is that psychophysicists essentially aren't interested in terms like attention, perception, consciousness, etc., unless you can test them in a lab. Mm. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, this is a good standard um, criteria that you would apply to any scientific concept. The concept isn't of use unless you can somehow use it to generate theories that can be tested. And so when we're interested in attention uh, for a psychophysicist, what you're typically interested in is thinking, well, OK, when, when we say someone's paying attention, what we mean is they're selectively processing information about that thing. If I'm paying attention to the mug, it means that um, my brain or I have made a decision to process information about that mug and process it in greater depth and faster than other information I could. So as far as GY is concerned, what was used, just, just to get a tiny bit technical, what was used um, to test whether GY could pay attention to the disc is what's called a Posner paradigm which was developed, um, unsurprisingly, by someone called Posner in the 80s. And the idea is um, you present two stimuli, and for one of them, you present an arrow pointing towards it, and for the other, you don't present an arrow. Um, you, you don't present these two stimuli at the same time. These are in separate sort of tests. And if the person is faster at reacting to the one when there was an arrow there telling them where to pay attention, then they have paid attention to that thing. That's what it means to pay attention. And one of the reasons that definition is really good for a psychophysicist is that you can very clearly put someone in a lab and test it. So, you, you know, what you have is this, from a philosopher's point of view, you have this really interesting process where you have a very vague sort of everyday term like attention or consciousness or perception or cognition or thought or any of these kinds of terms. And then... The, the task for an experimental psychologist is to try and come up with a way of testing for these things. And this is one way that you can do that for something like attention. So in this case, the reason that we think GY was paying attention to the disc is because he was, uh, he was faster at reacting to the, the disc when the arrow was present as opposed to when the arrow wasn't present. Yeah. Um... And, and and this interesting feedback, right? Because the the experimentalists need to operationalize these concepts, and then and then potentially at least maybe the philosophers, then you know work with these definitions, and it, it can potentially inform our um, our folk understanding. Now mm. within the within the field is is this notion, this technical definition that's um, selectively processing information. Um, uh, you know that you can kind of test using the arrow experiment and presumably others. Um, is that the is that just widely accepted as the only way of thinking about attention within the field, or are there are there is there are there other alternatives that are either closely more closely aligned with the folk definition or um, 
equally distant from the folk definition, but still uh, distinct from the one that we've been discussing. Well, there's there's many many uh, ideas on there's many many ideas uh, kind of uh, on offer. I mean, one of the things about the definition of attention that I gave, um, uh, you know, where you have the arrow and if the person's faster uh, at reacting to the arrow that uh, to the thing that the arrow is pointing towards, then they paid attention. I mean, one of the problems with that is that it defines attention entirely in terms of some task that someone's performing, right? So mm -hmm. it almost, you know, it almost says you can't be paying attention to something unless you're performing a task of this kind, mm -hmm. which is obviously not what's really meant by the definition. What you would really want is something a bit broader. The other interesting feature about it is that it kind of, it defines attention entirely in terms of the behavior of a, a, a psychological subject but there might be all sorts of um, other reasons you're interested in attention so it seems pretty plausible that you can pay attention to something without it showing up in your behavior at all so you could sit in your office or in your room and you mm -hmm. could pay attention to the things on your desk um, <laughs> and that might not manifest in your behavior in any way so right. there's a kind of way that it's limited in that respect but there's also um, so that's kind of one limitation of the kind of definition I was talking about. Mm -hmm. But there's also a much so, a more sort of scientific -y one, which is it's uh, scientific -y is not a technical term. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other scientists who might have other interests. And for those kinds of uh, scientists, it might be a bit unsatisfactory because, of course, it tells you about the subject's behavior. It defines attention entirely in terms of the subject's behavior, but it doesn't tell you really what's going on in their brain at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are other proposed definitions or understandings of attention, which are phrased uh, in neuroscientific terms. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, um, there's a very popular model called the biased competition model um, of attention, which is essentially, um, it tries to define attention entirely in terms of what's going on in the brain. And uh, in layman's terms, what it essentially says is that you might have one area of the brain and that might have five or six different packages of information about different um, about different um, uh, inform about different things in your environment. And they're essentially those different packets are all shouting against each other to try and quieten each other down. They're all basically saying, I want my information to be processed mm. and there's no chance that uh, all of them could be processed. So there's a kind of extra module in the brain whose job it is to pick mm. which bits um, get pushed forward for further processing. And so it's called biased competition because there's a competition in the brain between all these different packets of information about different things and they all want to be heard. They're all screaming, listen to me. They're all saying, please process my information best. But the competition is biased because there's also something overseeing it which gets to kind of pick and choose which of the packets of information gets passed on to further processing. And that's uh, a definition of attention which is uh, extremely different from the uh, one we talked about before. And the reason it's different is because it's entirely in terms of what's going on in your brain mm -hmm. rather than in terms of subject's behavior or how people react to a particular stimulus. So what, what you essentially have is you, you've got this huge spectrum of different definitions of attention at one hand, you've got how people might think of attention in everyday speech. You know, you might say, oh, he can't pay attention. His attention spans really, really short. She's an attention seeker, things like that. 
Then you've got these psychophysical um, definitions in terms of stimuli and arrows and processing and stuff. Then you've got these neuroscientific definitions, some of which are in terms of biased competition. And then just making the whole thing worse, you've got a lot of philosophers complaining that there's no unity and there's no agreement about different definitions of attention. Um, so what you really have is a, a panoply of many, many different uh, potential definitions. Yeah, no, that's, and then so given given the state of affairs, is it is it accurate to characterize all of these research threads or research programs as um, like studying the same thing I, in some in some general sense, uh, or are these um, are these research programs just really about different things? Um, maybe they have some relationship to each other. Maybe not. Um, they all just kind of we use the same word to describe them, but but other than that, it's um, you know they're they're sufficiently distinct that it's not actually all that useful to think of them um, together or to group them together. Um, it, that's a very complicated question. Um, what what I think happens, um, and this happens in every area of science, and it's. Um, certainly not something which it's not a problem in any way in fact it's all part of what drives scientific discovery but what i think happens is you start off with some relations between different fields of inquiry so you might start with a kind of everyday normal folky understanding of attention um and you think well okay what what does attention mean there and it's like well well what you pay attention to is the stuff that you you focus on more than the other stuff. So it's some kind of selection of important information. And then you take that and then you try and use that as a, as a, as a rough guide to try and take that concept and make it a little bit more scientifically tractable. And what you end up with then is a, a definition like the psychophysics one. Mm -hmm. So you start off with, um, you know, a kind of everyday understanding and where you end up is actually departs, it almost takes on a life of its own, it actually departs from the folk understanding quite radically. And then you have a, a definition of the concept in something like psychology. And because this, this, hey, there's this thing, attention, and we all know from these psychological experiments, we know that it's really, really important for loads of stuff. Um, okay, so we want to understand what's going on in the brain, we want to understand how it's working. So a lot of these sort of these experiments and maybe similar experiments, people say, OK, well, this really important experiment from psychology, let's do it again. But let's have the subjects in a, an fMRI machine. So um, fMRI is, a, is a, a brain scanning technique where basically you put people in an fMRI machine and you can observe certain features of what's going on in their brain while they're performing that task. And then, you know, you say, well, there there's um here's the thing that here's the brain thing that's underlying that experiment and then again that uh, that definition itself in terms of stuff going on in the brain what's happening there that's taking on a life of its own again so you almost start i mean this is my view about this i certainly not everyone would agree with this in fact you know really no one agrees with me about this stuff <laughs> well, no well, you are a philosopher right when people agree with you no one in philosophy really agrees with me psychologists <laughs> seem to think it's okay oh, but okay. I, I think like what you you start off with 
you know, a, a definition in the normal everyday scheme of things. You try and make it codified in a psychological way in order to try and test it. And there, once you're interested in that, you, you start thinking, well, what's the brain stuff that's underpinning all these things? So you end up with a neural definition or a neuroscientific definition of attention, which again takes on its own, a life of its own. And then you're kind of off. One of the um, one of the things I really like to compare attention to is a concept like hardness. So imagine with hardness, you see something very similar um, happening, I think. So imagine you say, well, this desk is hard or this desk is really hard, but it's not as hard as diamond. It's harder than water, but it's not as hard as diamond. So, OK, that's that's great. And then that's an, uh, an obvious that's obviously true. Um, that my wooden desk is not as hard as diamond, uh, but it's harder than water. Mm -hmm. um, but then if a material scientist comes along and wants to understand what's really going on, then they're going to say things like, oh, well, actually, when you say hardness, you could mean all sorts of different things. You could mm -hmm. mean like scratchability, you could mean mm -hmm. resistance to pressure, etc., etc. Um, and then what you come up with is in order to be more precise, you try and model more precise definitions on the kind of loose phenomenon that you were initially interested in and then those definitions because they start being used in a in a science in a rigorous in a rigorous context they can again take on a life of their of their own and i think that's what's happened in with attention is you start with a a normal everyday concept and in order to make it kind of rigorous and scientifically tractable um, you have to come up with definitions which end up um, departing from the initial everyday understanding of attention and I certainly think that's like I said that's certainly not a bad thing in fact that's all part of how science progresses is to you start with a normal everyday phenomenon and then you have to change your definition and your understanding of it in order to rigorously um, in order to rigorously study it even if you end up with uh, a definition that's very different from where you started Right, or, or a multiplicity of definitions, all of which are, are different from where you started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways I think that the kind of rubber hits the road on this stuff, so there's the kind of scientific side of this and just structuring inquiry and, 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 and making progress and building knowledge. Um, but, you know, sometimes these definitions can have um, potentially legal or mm. um, sig they can certainly have legal significance. And then I think there are questions about um, how when we're doing de de how how we do the process of defining in the context of scientific inquiry whether that maps onto or how that maps onto how we think about doing um, kind of moral ethical normative reasoning so um, you know one example that comes up in my work so I, I, I'm a lawyer I do environmental law uh -huh. and um, you know the definition of species can be very important in the United States you know we have the we have something called the Endangered Species Act there are obviously analogs of that all over the world and um, you know, if a species is endangered, then lots of there are lots of legal ramifications in terms of protection of, of habitat and, and so on. And so it, it, be, it can be very important uh, to make a determination of, of, about whether a population uh, that's kind of the subject of inquiry is a species or not. Is it a mm -hmm. distinct species or is it not a distinct species? And the law just says species, <laughs> uh, doesn't really define it. And, um, and over time, my you know, as as I understand it, uh, that's a, a term like uh, like attention or hardness that we have an intuitive notion. Um, 
but uh, scientists have much more articulated notions and actually there seems to be a multiplicity of definitions um, but then we have the legal consequence of, of, of this reality as well and and so I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I mean, one is, do you agree that species is another case like hardness or attention where um, we've articulated into multiple definitions over time? And then um, is there anything normative to this de de definitional exercise or how should we think about normativity in, in this context? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could talk about species all day. I just think it's such an, <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I saw a book recently, a book from 2018, which listed 30 definitions of species, all of which have uh, advocates and their detractors. Um, it's it's just fascinating when you put it in a when you put it in the context of a, a of a, a ethical or a legal project. It is just so difficult to say because as a as a well as a species, I suppose we we place a lot of ethical. Um, we put place a lot of ethical import on the notion of a species. We think that it is important that species do not go extinct. Right. Um, but you know, you can have really radically uh, different views about what a species is. So you you can end up with such different um, such different answers to the question of whether a, a particular set of organisms is a species or not. There's a case that I've worked on that I um, really like, which is I don't know if you're familiar with it. Are you familiar with the um, ABC bear? Mm -mm. Nope. So the ABC bear is a population of bears that live um, off the coast of Canada. And they are quite interesting because they're the result of successful interbreeding between brown bears and polar bears. Mm -hmm. um, but they have the uh, what are called the phenotypic properties of um, brown bears. So basically they just look and act more right. or less like brown bears. So if you define a species by its ancestry, by the... Or, or, or by its ability to successfully interbreed with other organisms, then they count as polar bears. If you define them by how they look and how their behavior is and how they've been uh, selected to uh, adapt to certain environments, then they don't count as polar bears, they just count as brown bears. Um, so then there's this question, well, you know, if, all, if they all died out, what would that mean? Would that be good, bad? It's, and I just, don't, I just don't know if there's any good answers to those questions. Right. Um, or or we don't have good ways of getting at them. I think that's yeah. that's right. Um, it's my, that's my kind of view from within environmental laws that we still haven't built the um, the normative uh, ethical infrastructure that we need to really get traction on those questions. Mm. They're, they're, they're quite they're quite hard. I was talking to an to a to an environmental activist about this once um, and they worked for uh, an organization and one of their jobs was to uh, determine how many species lived in particular areas. Um, and I, I remember say, saying like, what, what do you mean by a species? How could that, you know? And um, they, they sort of said, oh, we're interested in biodiversity. Mm -hmm, um, right. So what they were actually interested in, it turned out was not how many species there were, but how many different kinds of organism there was. So if there were two, if there were two organisms which looked, acted, and were more or less structured really, really similar to each other, even if they were technically a different species, uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't count almost as a species for their purposes of, uh, of of preserving them because what they were really interested in was protecting diversity in 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 the organic world, 
rather than rather than protecting species where species is defined as a scientist would define it they were interested in m making sure that the world didn't lose out on uh, unique and you know very different kinds of organisms do you see what i mean oh yeah no and and it's and we could do this kind of game at different in different ways right we could think mm. of phenotypes phenotypic mm. As a as a bundle, right? Or you could say, well, what's actually really what we really care about are um, kind of sub, you know, sub characteristics like a particular claw type, right? Or mm. it's, you know, it's important because of the structure of its eye, and that's unique in the world. Um, or you could think of you know niches that are being filled, like oh, the yeah. you know, there's nothing else that fills this niche here, or there's you know, it plays a kind of unique role in you know in this ecosystem. Then there's no other analogs in other ecosystems. You could talk about genetic diversity, right? Just preserving different kinds of genes yeah. <laughs> um, that, that could that could move, you know, that could potentially move move around. So um, so yeah, and then and ultimately, you know, since we're talking about you know normativity uh you have to ask why like why do you care about any of these things um you know why is it important why is it worth um expending resources on why you know limiting people's liberty to develop their property or whatever else they want to do um if we think we have to justify those kinds of moves um you know you should be able to provide some kind of answer for you know why is why is it that we care about this that or the other thing yeah i mean it's it's um i mean that uh, I assume you're familiar with the phoneticist project in the 20th century, um, the, which was basically an attempt to, it sort of, it was an attempt to defining species where you would sort of say, I'm just going to count all the properties that the organisms have, and the ones that have most properties in common, they're all members of the same species. Um, so basically what you're trying to really get at there is the idea that members of the same species of organisms are just similar to each other. You know, you and I are really similar to each other in the way that we're just not similar to a wombat. Right. That seems pretty intuitive that members of the same species are quite similar to each other. But that the project didn't, I mean, the received view is that it didn't really work out because you start saying, well, which properties are relevant? You know, here's a list of my properties. I have, I have two legs, I'm this tall, I have brown hair also. I live in this house uh, and I like to take walks on a Sunday afternoon. You know, what makes one property relevant and the right. other one not? And right. uh, for that for that reason, it kind of never quite made it as, a, as an approach to species. Yeah. Um, so you've got this absolute nightmare. You can't just start picking properties and saying anything with this property is a member of the same species because um, you'll never really get anywhere. Because as you, as you said, you need to justify why that property is important. And that's really difficult. Uh, it's, it's 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 really interesting stuff. So I want to um, kind of move us in the direction of a, of a concept like um, consciousness and and you know intelligence and 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 take us into into that territory. But maybe we could go there mm -hmm. by way of some of your work on um, perception and, and get some other ideas on the table. So a um, in in one of the one one of your papers that I took a look at, you are interested in the idea of unconscious perception and then what that concept might tell us about you know, what, what perception is or how we talk about perception. So, so I guess that's just kind of the, the first question to get us started with that is, is can you, can you have, so we were in the earlier discussion talking about, can you attend to something um, that is not um, part of your conscious experience? And I guess a, a, a distinct but related question is, can you perceive something if you do so unconsciously? So um, 
I don't know if you have a, 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 a an answer to that question, but but what what kinds of what does that question tell us, or why is that question interesting? Maybe we could start with that. So essentially, imagine you're interested in consciousness. You want to know what consciousness is, and obviously that's really really important. Um, I mean, just sticking to the theme of non-human animals for a bit. Imagine you have a vegan and a meat eater arguing with each other. The vegan says you shouldn't eat pigs because pigs are conscious, they can feel pain. The meat eater says, no, you can do whatever you want to pigs because they're not conscious, they're essentially right. just machines. Right. So you want to know what consciousness is and you want to know what brain structures kind of underpin consciousness because it's a really ethically important question because it determines how we uh, treat non-human animals and there's many, many other um, ethical questions that turn on on consciousness one of the interesting questions is okay well the brain's full of stuff there's all sorts of stuff going on in the brain where's the bit that does consciousness or does it all do consciousness or at what stage of processing does something penetrate through and actually manage to be conscious so you know if you look at if you look at very low level kind of um, processes that might happen in the brainstem or something like that it's very it's pretty clear that they're completely unconscious um and one of the ways of understanding uh, where consciousness begins and ends is to think about well so sometimes often we perceive things you look out at the world or you listen to the world or you use your sense organs to get information about the world and for many years it was sort of generally thought that when you perceive the world that kind of perception can re- can come uh, in an unconscious or an, a conscious format so sometimes you know you, you look out at, I look out at my desk and I see the mug there and I perceive that and I perceive it consciously I'm aware of it I know about it um, and everything's fine but in other cases you, m- you might have a case like someone like GY the person who had blindsight that we talked about at the start of the mm-hmm. podcast where he's blind in a certain area of his visual field, but there's a sense in which at least he's still seeing those things because he can guess correctly what's there 98% of the time. Um, Or or so he, um, or so that's what the experiments seem to show. So what you get there is a result like, okay, so there's conscious and unconscious perception. Sometimes we perceive something consciously and sometimes we're completely unaware of what we perceive. The most famous example of um, unconscious perception is, of course, subliminal advertising, Mm -hmm. where the idea is you flash up a certain image for a few frames while someone's watching something else. And you flash up an image of someone holding a, you know, kind of Diet Coke or something. And suddenly they really fancy a Diet Coke. uh, That's not been scientifically proven rigorously, to say the least. But that's that's kind of the idea, you know, that you perceive something you're totally unaware of. Um, and what's happened recently is a lot of the experiments which try and show unconscious perception have um, been called into question for many, many different uh, methodologically interesting reasons. Mm. And of course, center stage in this debate, you know, what do we mean by, is, is the question of what do we mean by perception? Everyone sensible accepts that, well, everyone, I think, entirely um, would accept that, you know, if light from an object falls uh, goes into your eye and falls onto your retina that in itself doesn't make it conscious so there's a certain sense in which it it's kind of clear that 
there's there's certain perceptual processes or certain things that happen to your sense organs which don't themselves suffice for consciousness but at what at what stage of processing do we want to say well that's where perception properly happens that's right you know we've crossed the threshold here from just registering information about the environment to actually properly perceiving it and being able to use that information to inform our decisions and inform our actions and that's um, one of these very sticky definitional cases like we were talking about before where the barriers between what counts as perception and what counts as uh, what doesn't count as perception um, it can be very very blurry and of course that itself has a knock-on effect to the question of whether you can perceive something unconsciously and that itself has a knock-on effect in understanding the question of what is consciousness and where does it come from right so it's quite it's very sticky at the moment very it's, sticky i think this is fascinating the way i uh, kind of think of this just to put a just to make sure i'm um, understanding clearly is if we take an eye an eyeball that we've removed from some from a person and <laughs> and and shine a light on the retina we wouldn't say that there's been perception no right and, and we know that but we know there's a process where the retina connects to you know some part of the brain and then there's information that's extracted there and then pushed forward and, and kind of move and propagates throughout the brain and you can ask kind of well what if we just take the you know, slice of brain where the visual, you know, the uh, the optical nerve connects. Is there a perception there? And then, yeah. you know, yeah. or what if we take a slightly bigger slice of the brain? And, and, you know, at what point do we, you know, have we constructed enough mini brain <laughs> that we would say <laughs> that there's such a thing as a perception um, uh, yeah. and, and then ultimately pot potentially consciousness? Well, as a lawyer, I would I would hope that you're familiar with the 90s film Demolition Man. Where Wesley Snipes does indeed remove someone's eyeball. Right, right. right. Minority Report, that happens uh, That happens too, right? Oh, but... it does, yes. In Minority Report, someone asks Tom Cruise why he wants to keep his old eyes, and he says, right. because my mother gave them to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yes, but yeah, so... basically, sorry, you have, you have an eyeball, and it receives light. And we don't want to say that perception happens there, and it certainly doesn't seem to be that that in itself is sufficient to generate consciousness. Right. Um, but the further back in your brain you go, eventually you're going to end up with uh, a full on perception of the world. And it's going to be very sophisticated. There's going to be all sorts of processes that have gone into constructing that. It's going it's going to have been rerouted through many different areas of your brain, through your visual cortex to your prefrontal cortex in the front of your head. So basically, at one end of the process, you've got something where you're pretty sure that's not a perception. And at the other end, you've got a case where oh, that's definitely a perception but mm -hmm. exactly where to draw the line is extremely difficult right it's fa it's a fascinating thing so um so yeah so 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 what do you so so where do we go f from there i mean so we know that there's a hard line drawing problem um does that mean that this, these concepts are not useful or or how, how do we start to get traction my opinion is so this is my view my view is that it is fundamentally and irreversibly vague. Mm. So my, my view is that concepts, uh, including scientific concepts, are often very vague. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a bad thing about it. In fact, that's a really a good thing about certain concepts is that they are vague because they kind of have to be. Mm -hmm. So for an example of a, a vague concept, you might take the concept sport, you know, mm -hmm. well, we, we know we know a sport when we see it 
there's rugby, there's football, obviously, those are sports. Um, and But then we've got vague cases, like some people claim that chess is a sport. Mm-hmm. And right. people might say, oh, I'm not sure that it is, but then, well, is snooker a sport or darts? And it sort of feels like somehow darts is more a sport than chess, but it doesn't feel like as much of a sport as rugby. Or, or if you have a concept like a uh, concept of a vehicle, you know, you might, well, a car and a motorbike, they're obviously both vehicles, but does a lift or an elevator count as a vehicle? Does it? Right, right. Things like this. I mean, this and, is in the, in the law. This is the, you know, this is the bread and butter of legal argumentation, right? This is, mm. uh, you know, like an insurance contract excludes dangerous sports. Well, is snorkeling a sport? Ah, well, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a big problem because of course language is vague and language always has been vague. That's just the nature of language. Lang- language is not there to draw completely and utterly perfect uh, divisions between different things in the world. It's, it, it, that's just not what it's for. So when you have borderline cases, it can be extremely difficult. Um, there was a famous case, uh, are you aware of the Jaffa Cake case? So McVitie's is a British um, biscuit company and um, during uh, World War Two, chocolate biscuits were um, taxed. Uh, because they were oh, seen yeah. as a, a luxury. I think this was a World mm-hmm. War II thing. Mm-hmm. And the tax never went away. Um, and they were sued for never paying their tax because they produced this product, which in the UK is extremely popular, called Jaffa Cakes. And they're like a... a they are. I, I don't want to describe them as either a biscuit or a cake because that would be controversial. <laughs> it's conclusory, right? <laughs> they are certainly... They are a biscuit-sized and biscuit-shaped thing which is uh-huh. made of stuff that you would normally <laughs> associate with a cake perfect example right um, yeah this is great yeah and eventually the court ruled that they were not biscuits they were cakes they were tiny uh-huh. cakes and they were very very <laughs> unlike other cakes but they were cakes uh-huh. um, and that's it that's a case where you have you know we know a big a wedding cake's definitely a cake and a digestive or a rich tea biscuit is definitely a biscuit Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sorry. I suppose I suppose you might say cookie. Cookie in the U.S. Uh, yeah. yeah sure. Sorry. Uh, this is <laughs> already you see the perils yeah. of communication, uh, <laughs> and then you've got this thing which bridges this this terrifying thing which bridges which has some properties in common with a cake, some right. in common with a biscuit, and that's that's a legal quandary, as you said. Right. And now, and it almost takes us right into AI in a way. Mm. But but you know, in the way I teach my students this is you know, or the I think the standard way in the U.S. that we teach this kind of stuff is, you know the law is full of these ambiguities and um, how are courts supposed to resolve them well you know there's different ways but the you know fairly standard ways to think about what why do we have this definition like what work is it doing and you know if in, in the case of the cake biscuit distinction what we're trying to track here is something about whether some, uh, the item is a luxury item um, you know there, there's a reason that the legislature chose to tax one thing versus the other let's see if we can mm-hmm. back out um, some clarity from the underlying thing but you know when you take a case like consciousness and you know just to move us into AI territory um, I mean the pig is a great example so someone says pigs aren't conscious someone else says that they are there's a clear normative um you know consequence of that or Mm -hmm. you know in some future world if if you know there's there's a very sophisticated ai and there's a question of you know what kinds of uses can we put this ai to um you know is it is it cruel to require an ai to spend you know a, a billion lifetimes learning how to play go uh, in a very sophisticated way um 
you know, these, these have real normative payoffs. And, you know, in a sense, if the concept is hopelessly, so I guess when maybe, maybe just to, to understand when you say that the concept is hopelessly vague, does that mean that it's, it's useless in, in, in these kinds of normative um, debates or how do we, how do we, what kind of concept can we make recourse yeah. to? Yeah. So, so I think that I, I, if I said, I might, I might have said hopelessly vague, so I didn't mean to say hopelessly, I meant kind of um, irreducibly vague, like the vagueness mm -hmm. won't go away is more mm -hmm. what I meant. Mm -hmm. but I think that, so let's, with the thing is with vague, vague concepts in science generally is, people often think of, that science should be as precise as possible, and, and certainly it should be very, much more precise than everyday language, of course, but there are certain cases where too much precision is actually a bad thing because the thing that you're trying to study might itself just be quite vague. So if we go back to the concept of a species, you know, you, you, might, have, um, you might have a species of bird, which is really similar to, you might have, sorry, you might have a population of birds that are right. really similar to another population. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of want to say that they're the same species. And then the second population is really similar to another one, and that's a tiny bit similar to another, and so on and so forth. It just doesn't seem right to impose a strict boundary uh, mm -hmm. on any one place along that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And what, to my, what I think the right thing to say is like, the world is just full of tiny little variations here and right. there, right. and it There's would actually be, it's better to have a vague concept that captures it roughly than to artificially impose boundaries where there just aren't any. So philosophers often say that th there's this famous quote from Plato, which philosophers of science are really uh, keen on quoting, which is that uh, concepts should carve nature at the joints. Mm -hmm. So the world has a certain structure and our concepts should match up as well as possible with that structure, but they shouldn't be too precise. We shouldn't be drawing distinctions where there aren't really any distinctions in nature. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the way I'd like to say that concepts in science are often vague is that they often have to be because the thing they're studying is you know the world itself is just vague and admits of small variations here and there and things like that so one of the things that, okay so i'm just curious to, on your view on this is are there joints right so you could imagine the the you know because so so one you want to carve you want your concepts to carve nature at the joints to with apologies to the vegetarians right what we're talking about is you know you're taking apart yeah. a chicken right um and you don't hack through the bone of the of the leg you you know you separate the um at, at the joint where it's easier to do that and you know but but there are joints right there are places where the the knife will go through easily and so i guess the i guess the question is cuz you can imagine an alternative uh, you know electromagnetic radiation there are no joints in yes. in and well i don't know actually i mean there's quanta i guess right i don't know so so maybe there are real joints but the joints are really very very small um, but how do you you know, if you if you think that the world is roughly continuous, and 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 you know, if that's the model of the world, mm -hmm. then there are then there are no joints. And so, um, so how do you decide? Or, I mean, so is, I guess is that's the question: is is on your view, are are there joints that we can that we can aim for, or is it that um, as we get closer and closer, there are joint-like things, but it turns out that as we you know zoom in. Um, you know, it's it's like a fractal that there there are just a new set of joints, um, and where we were initially aim, aiming it turns out to just be right the, in the middle of a continuum. 
uh, it, it's interesting. I once asked a butcher about this card nature and uh-huh. joints metaphor. I sort of said, you know, because because you're a butcher, so you, you want to cut at the joints because that's uh-huh. easier, right? Right. And uh-huh. she said, um, she said, French butchers carve at the joints. I'm British butcher. I hack through the bone. And, <laughs> and, and if it's too difficult, I buy a larger cleaver. Kind of what she said. So um, uh, anyway, it's difficult. I mean. My view is that there are the harder you look, the harder it is to see joints sometimes. Uh, uh, so I think species is such a useful case. But let if we go back to that as an example, mm-hmm. you see a dog standing next to a human standing next to a cockroach. And you're like, you sort of look at them and you think, well, the dog, the human and the cockroach are just so different from each other. That right. sounds like the, the start of a riddle, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> get them across the river. Um, I mean, like, well, there's, look, there's a dog, there's a human and a cockroach, and they're, they're so different from each other. Like, of course, the world the world has joints in the sense that they are so different, and right. biological concepts should pick up on those differences. They should study dogs differently from humans to differently to cockroaches. But the more fine-grained you get, the more everything gets fuzzy, and you're like, you sort of think, well, what's the precise difference between a dog and a wolf? And mm-hmm. Or with a human being, you might think, well, what's the precise difference between a human being and a Neanderthal or something like that? Right. Um, so I think the joints get harder to see the more fine-grained you get. I think this is a really, really difficult question because, of course, the big question you're asking is what do you do when the fine grain really matters right like in the ethical case right where in, you have to decide yeah. whether to give something status and and yeah. how to treat it right yeah i mean i my the short answer is that's really difficult and if i could solve it i'd already be a professor <laughs> I, I think that the kind of approach i've always thought was best is um i have i have argued in favor of this thing that something i've quite pompously called conceptual methodological pluralism Mm-hmm. which is where okay suppose you have a fine-grained case where you're not sure how to define consciousness for example or perception um, and maybe the concept itself is just really fine-grained and the world is such that there is just no answer to precisely which way you should go so what you should do in that case I think is well you think it was kind of what you were talking about legally you look at the background theoretical considerations that might push you one way or the other basically before you decide how you want to define something very roughly what you do is well why do we want a concept at all and what do we expect it to do for us Mm -hmm. so for example if if you're interested in um, artificial intelligence ethical considerations arising from that you might say something like well AlphaGo was made to play a hundred million games of Go before it very famously faced off against Lisa Doll in uh, 2016. Is this ethically right or wrong? Well, you think, okay, so what kind of definition of consciousness is relevant to that question? Mm -hmm. Obviously, one that defines it in terms of uh, a human brain is useless. That's that's it. So I was talking earlier about... Just conclusory, right? Yeah, because you just say, well, if we define consciousness in terms of what's going on in the brain, then... uh, AlphaGo does not have a brain, so they are not conscious. Simple. Right, QED. Yeah, exactly. We can all go home and we can all refine our butchery skills or something. Right. And obviously that's in, that's inappropriate. What you would what you'd really want is something which is 
an appropriate definition so that it's at least possible for AlphaGo to come out as conscious. Like, um, but exactly how you would do that is is very very. Um, it's very sticky and very difficult because, um, because you know there are all, with consciousness there are many different theories about what consciousness is, and for good reason they are they're geared towards um, mammal consciousness they're geared towards humans and non-human animals, typically non-human mammals. Um, so all our understanding and our definition is kind of species bound in that way, and trying to extrapolate those. To sort of strip them of all those kind of those kind of unique features of uh, of mammal brains and trying to apply them to something as different as AlphaGo is is I mean it's very difficult to know where you might even start with that kind of question. But as you say, it's something that we do have to have a go at because there's lots of really important ethical considerations that are relevant to that. Um, it's just it's just a bit of a minefield and very difficult. Yeah, it's hard to imagine how we're gonna how we're gonna make make traction on it. Okay, we're over time. I have actually just one more question for you. I'm just curious what your what your uh, take is on, on this, and then I, I I I'll thank you for <laughs> your time today and 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 let you go. But so the, so the question is just to go back to the the cockroach, human, and dog example. At some mm-hmm. is you know may. And I guess the question is, how much do you think this is about the world versus human brains and how we process information about the world? So, you know, the the dog, cockroach, human thing, we could think of them as being different types of things, right? Um, yeah. Or we could think of them as being in a space, in a biological space, and being far away from each other in that space in the same way that you and I are further away from each other right now physically than I am to my, you know, to my house or to my colleague down the... Uh, down the uh, down the hall, but you know, you know, there's distance at, at you know, but I'm even closer to the desk and even closer to you know whatever you know some uh, an, a molecule in the air that's you know very very close to my body. So there's a space we can say that there's distances between things, but it's not necessarily that there is um, you know that there is a, a there are joints within mm-hmm. the space, yeah. right? That yeah. there are discontinuities. It's just that um, that there's a space. And so we, but, but human brains, because of how we process information or maybe how, because of how human language works is we take this continuous space and we tend to want to put these discontinuities into it uh, to facilitate our reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the question is how much do you think of the, the kind of quote unquote problem that we face when trying to kind of think through these definitional questions as a matter of a lack of under like that the, the world's hard to understand and where the discontinuities are and so on and so forth that it it arises out of the out of the world at some level versus that these arise out of you know how humans the structure that humans impose you know just through you know kind of our natural cognitive way that we relate to the world and and it's the disjoint between how humans map the world versus the actual way the world is that creates the the difficulties um this is something I've changed my mind on quite radically over the last few years. So when I was doing my PhD, I was so very roughly we might characterize these two views as what you might call realism, which is the view that the the world is really structured and certain things are objectively just similar and dissimilar from each other. Um, The other view you might call um, something like uh, anti-realism. Mm-hmm. is the view that the world is just a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and we come and impose our concepts on it 
and make artificial distinctions, but really there aren't very many distinctions there to be made. Um, the, the, the latter view is kind of associated with um, a philosopher called Rudolf Carnap, and I, I bring him up because I always want to have an opportunity to bring up someone who's called Rudolf at every opportunity. <laughs> um, I used to be a very strong Carnapian. I used mm. to think that the, the world was just a lump of stuff, and uh, all of our conceptual divisions were just kind of, we were just, I mean, it's not like different things in the world aren't similar or dissimilar from each other, but I used to think it was just human conventions, how we chose to classify things, mm -hmm. how we carved different things out, and why we said that that thing's a dog and that thing's a human. Um, over time, I have moved much more towards the view that there are at least some joints out there in nature. Mm. And I think basically the reason I think that this is a very, very broad sort of argument, but very roughly, I, I think, well, look, some concepts are just more useful for science and for human discovery than other ones are. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some concepts which are really useful for successful research programs and for successfully understanding the world. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways of categorizing things which are just hopeless. So, for example, um, in the 17th century, you might have defined that the 17th century chemist Robert Boyle, he defined an acid as something that has a sour taste, is corrosive, okay. and can red and blue plant dyes. And nowadays, we just don't define an acid that way anymore. We, just we tend to define an acid as a substance um, whose constituents have an incompletely filled outer electron shell. Right. And there's just a very, very clear sense in which the second definition is just better than the first. Mm -hmm. And one of them is obvious, because if you define an acid as something that's sour tasting, then you're going to have to taste it to find out whether it's an acid. <laughs> which, is, which is not great with hydrochloric which acid. <laughs> a mighty bad idea. With acid, yeah. um, but I, I just kind of decided eventually that there are certain concepts which are just much better for uh -huh. scientific discovery and for philosophy and for various other sort of human endeavors as well. And I decided ultimately um, that the only re that the only way to explain why some mm -hmm. concepts were better than others was because there must just be something really objective about the structure of the world that meant that certain ways of carving up the world, certain making certain distinctions and using certain concepts was better than others. That I think a lot of the concepts we do use that are really good and are really successful are very vague, as I've mm -hmm. said, and they can cause lots and lots of um, problems of the kind that we've been talking about. But ultimately, I think scientifically there are good and bad concepts. Um, and I think the best way to explain that is that the world does have joints and that our best concepts are the ones that pick up on those divisions and pick up on those joints in nature. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so and I think it's a you know a so, somewhat abstract, but still nevertheless quite an optimistic uh, uh, way to end the podcast. So, um, <laughs> so, so I think that that um, you know that that's hopeful, right? Because it's it, 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 in a sense um, explains scientific progress and gives us hope that we'll continue to to make some as we can as we refine uh, further refine these ideas. So, well, thanks so much for setting aside the time to chat. It was a it was a really fun uh, conversation. Well, thanks very much for having me. This has been lovely. Thank you.